Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. For his divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, that through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, that through these he has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Before we open God's word to Ephesians today, let's ask God's guidance on our study. Thankful that you have given us your word that your word is described in the scripture as the mind or the thinking of Jesus Christ, that that which is contained in your word, that which would be revealed to us, was part of your thinking from eternity past, and there never was a time when it was not part of your thinking, and that there is a significant design in the way that you have revealed it to us in terms of the Old Testament and then the New Testament, the progression of the literature within each, that God the Holy Spirit breathed this out through the writers of Scripture so that as we walk by the Spirit, the very one who revealed your word, that we are able through him to understand it and that nothing in here is by chance or by accident that all that is here is said in a way that is specific and was intentional and that we are to study it, memorize it, meditate on it, and again and again as we go through our lives. For it is through your word that we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would guide our thinking today in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, where in these first three verses we are looking at this command that we are to walk worthy, and just exactly what that means and what that looks like. Now, we aren't to figure out what it looks like so that we can evaluate other people. You know, there's a lot of believers who do that, and you end up with people saying things, well, I don't know how they can be a Christian. Look at what they did. Well, that, there's so many things that are wrong with it. Aside from being judgmental, it assumes that Christians are always going to do the right thing or that just because you're saved, you're no longer going to do certain things, and it would be impossible. And that's just not what Scripture teaches. The Scriptures do not teach that we are morally better when we trust Christ as our Savior. That's not part of regeneration. We have new life. Remember, spiritual death means that we are alienated from the life of God. So that one of the things that happens at salvation is we're given new life. Another thing that happens is that we are made alive again spiritually because that which was lost in Adam's sin was that aspect of his immaterial nature that enabled him to have a walk with the Lord, to have a relationship with the Lord, and we refer to that as his human spirit. It is that part that enabled enables us to understand God's word, 
and to be able to apply it to our life in the church age, that is, through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And so walking worthy is not something you can do before you trust in Christ as Savior because a spiritually dead person can't walk worthy of the Lord. When we trust in Christ, as both deacons mentioned in their prayers, he who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God, uh, that we might be found with the righteousness of God in him. That refers to what is called the doctrine of justification by faith, that when we trust Christ as Savior, God imputes to us, he grants to us, he gives to us his righteousness so that nothing in us is the basis for that salvation. He looks at us and sees us in possession of the righteousness of Christ and declares us righteous, doesn't make us any better. And unless we grow spiritually we're not going to get any better. There are various theological systems that say that if you're truly born again, you are going to live a changed life. It is inevitable. Well, that violates so many different things. It's unbelievable, and it's rank heresy. There's nothing inevitable about spiritual growth. Once we trust in Christ, the way to grow is how? It's through the Word. I just quoted from... First uh, Peter two two that we are to desire the unadulterated milk of the word, like a newborn baby, so that we may grow thereby. Well, if you never take in the word, then you will not grow. And if you don't understand principles about walking by the Spirit, you won't ever get beyond the crawling stage. And all of this is so important for us to understand because there's so many things out there that are wrong. What we have here by Paul is that he is talking about the characteristics that we should see in our life over a course of time as we are walking by the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians 5.16. John 15, 1 and following, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. Those are fellowship terms. And so as we abide in him, then the result is that there will be the production of fruit, more fruit and much fruit, different amounts of of fruit. And one thing I like to point out is if you ever have tried to grow a garden, especially around here, people like to grow tomatoes that there can be a lot of growth in a plant before there's ever any fruit. Fruit is the production of a mature plant. Oak trees take some years before they produce their fruit, which is which are acorns. I don't know, it probably takes a year or two before pecan trees can produce pecans. So the fruit takes time. It is not something that is that that happens just automatically. There has to be fertilization, there has to be water, there has to be all the right nutrients in the soil, and that's all roughly analogous to the Word of God and the Spirit of God that provide us with those nourish, that nourishment. So when we grow, we are to see God the Holy Spirit working in our lives, and over the course of time, then there will be certain manifestations of that work. And that's described in Galatians 5, 22 to 23 as the fruit of the Spirit, 
which are so similar to many of these characteristics that Paul is describing here in these first uh, first three verses. So the focus today is going to be on patience, and then we'll get into love as well. So as I pointed out, we haven't been focusing on this in a few weeks. Uh, the these are the different paragraphs, and the first section for 1 through 16 actually talk about our walk in unity. And there is so much the last couple of hundred years that has been shoved down uh, uh, Americans' throat and Westerners' throat about unity. And, it's, and liberalism and liberal theology are all about unity at the expense of truth. But what the scripture emphasizes is its unity on the basis of truth. And that those who do not conform to truth, which is exemplified in the phrase that is used here, the unity of the the faith, that if they do not conform to the biblical faith, then they are the ones that are breaching the unity. The other thing that we see is that this unity, is, it is described in Ephesians uh, 4.3 that we are to uh, endeavor or strive or to maintain. It's not to keep, it's to maintain is a better term, the unity of the spirit. And that is because the unity isn't created by us. The unity was created by the Holy Spirit at the instant of faith for every believer. We are united together on that basis, and it is sin that drives that apart. So we have to work at maintaining that, at preserving that, not creating it. So let's just review a few things that we've seen so far in verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, strongly urge you to conduct your life in a manner worthy of the exalted position to which you were summoned. That gets the point across that what this is talking about is our new position in Christ, our identity in Christ as those who have been justified those who have been adopted into the royal family of God, those who have become members of the body of Christ, and that that is an exalted position higher than any other believer in all of history has been given, and that we are to live accordingly. And it is not that we will be kicked out of the family. I think most of us can have a, an analogy in our own experience in our families where we did something as a child that was viewed as pretty serious breach of conduct by our parents. They still fed us. They still let us sleep in the house. They still took us to the doctor, but we had done something that needed to be uh, taken care of. And so it didn't destroy our position in the family, but it broke down the fellowship within the family. And so we are to walk in light of who we are as a member of that family. Now, one of the things pointed out in the therefore is it looks forward, it looks backwards to what he said, and it looks forward to what he's going to say on the basis of what he has said, 
But actually, in verses 1 through 3, the focus is on the unity, which is the focus of the next part, what is coming up and how we should walk. Uh, or excuse me, that uh, the Ephesians 1 through 3 is focusing on this new walk, which is the subject of 4, 7 to 6, 9. And walking is referred to about four times in that section. And then verses 4 through 6 that speak of the unity that we have in the body of Christ, that looks back to all of the things that were said in verses 1 through 3, and that this unity is the unity between Jew and Gentile who are now one in Christ. All other racial, cultural, language, subcultural distinctions are simply artificial distinctions created by human beings. The one distinction God created was the distinction between Jew and Gentile, and that was necessary for a number of reasons related to the plan of salvation. It was based on the law of Moses, and it was, uh, it was ended at the cross. So if that was ended at the cross, then there's no longer an excuse for anybody to have any attitudes of superiority based on any other uh, uh, human factor. And so Paul strongly urges them, using the word parokaleo, it is, uh, it's the main verb. It's not a command, but when you have this kind of a verb plus the infinitive to conduct your life or to walk, uh, that gives it an imperatival sense. Now, the reason I'm stressing that is because when you look at this whole sentence of verses 1 through 3, that the fact that this construction at the beginning, this statement, I strongly urge you to walk worthy, I strongly urge you to conduct your lives in a worthy manner, that command impacts everything else that's that's said. In other words, it bleeds over so that everything else that is said here, when it talks about uh, uh, with all lowliness and gentleness, that's imperatival because it's modifying this imperatival uh, structure. And to... um, with uh, long suffering, with uh, and bearing with one another in love, and endeavoring to maintain the unity of the spirit, all of that has a has an imperatival sense. This is mandatory; it's not not optional. So the we are urged to walk in a manner worthy of that exalted position. Now, a review of this chart: we have our eternal realities and temporal realities. At the instant that we trust in Christ, we are identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that is referred to by the phrase positional truth, our position in Christ. At the instant of salvation, that we have the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Now, as a preview of coming attractions, in verse 5 we read, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is the baptism that that is referencing. And there's a significant amount of confusion about just what this baptism by the Spirit is, so we'll take some time to dig into that when we get there. The temporal realities have to do with our day-to-day walk, Uh, our walking on the right side within the light is based on the fact that in our position on the left side, we are 
sons of the light. We are children of the light, so we are to walk as children of light. That comes up in Ephesians chapter 5. So this describes the two aspects of our Christian life. In terms of these eternal realities, we're now in a new man, a new body, a holy temple. We're called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. We're called a royal priesthood, the family of God, and we are in a new household. All of that is who we are. Verse 2 starts off saying, With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Last time I pointed out that when you see a lot of these prepositions that we're used to, we should stop and think about what they mean. Sometimes look them up in a dictionary. I have observed over the years of working with people in cross-cultural, cross-language type of situations that people with other languages will translate English prepositions differently than we would necessarily understand them. Prepositions are extremely fluid, and they overlap a lot. And so it's important to understand that, and I just pointed out last time, you don't have to memorize these, but these are the ten different nuances to the preposition with. And so when you see the word with, you have to describe, oh, what, what does that mean? Well, we do that as, as native English speakers. We just automatically classify it because we're familiar with it. We know what it is. But when you're looking at a with in, for example, in Greek, where we have the preposition meta, it can have different senses, some which are English, some which aren't. And so you have to take, take a look at it. And it has the idea of accompaniment. And it is uh, you often used of states of mind, such as these attitudes of lowliness and gentleness. Now, I talked about those last time, that we have such a hard time with these terms, mostly because we're not lowly, which means humble. We're not. There's not a fiber of our being as a fallen creature that has anything to do with humility. And it's interesting, in the ancient world, the word that is used here for humility was never used before the Bible, before the first century. I mean, pagans just don't have any use whatsoever for humility. If you're going to get anywhere, it has to be because you're promoting yourself, and it's all about self-assertion. And so humility is uh, not a virtue as it is from Christianity, and the other word that is used there, which is gentleness, is another word that we have trouble with because we think of gentleness as somebody who's just being taken advantage of all the time, somebody who's being walked over all the time. For men, gentleness may even involve uh, certain effeminate characteristics, and you really don't want to get in touch with your feminine side, so you just don't understand what this means. And it is really the idea of a of a control of a it's a manifestation of self control and the ability to exercise power and strength under control so that you are i best may uh, define this with negatives you're not angry you're not irritated you're not impatient uh, you're not trying to get your way and assert yourself and you are relaxed and under control. Uh, all of those ideas are present there in that terminology for gentleness. So lowliness is humility, 
which I have translated in, and we'll get there in some of the slides, as with, uh, with genuine humility. And uh, genuine humility is the word in this slide, tapanifrasune, it's translated humility. But we look at examples in Scripture such as the Lord Jesus Christ and Moses. Moses was called the uh, most humble or meek man in the Old Testament. He was a very strong leader. If you are going to lead three million people through the desert for 40 years, you have to be a strong, tough leader. But he is a, was a leader under control. He would listen to people. He knew how to be patient in circumstances to arrive at the right uh, conclusion, and he was all the time on God. And when Jesus is on the earth, he is called. He used both of these terms, but in Philippians two, which we looked at last time, he humbled himself by going to the cross. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of the cross, and that's that idea of being obedient. He is under the authority of God. He is not asserting his will but following the will of God. So uh, the idea of gentleness is not someone who's always trying to get their own way, but somebody who carefully leads, somebody who's not motivated by anger or irritation or impatience. So those are the ideas there. In Colossians 3.12, which is sterile, where Paul says, For as the choice ones of God, set apart to God and beloved, Put on tender mercies, that's the word for, for mercy and compassion, legitimate compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. So the words humility and meekness are the same words that we have in our passage. So in Ephesians 3.27, it says that we have put on Christ. Paul says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. But he's also going to say that we have to put on Christ. So he's not contradicting himself. goes back to understanding our two circles here, that our eternal reality is that we have put on Christ at the instant of that baptism by the Holy Spirit. And yet as we walk by the Spirit, we learn to put on Christ, to live in a Christ-like way. So positionally, that's our identity. We have put on Christ experientially, we have to learn to do the good every day as we walk with him. So Ephesians 4.2 then goes on to add something to this idea of genuine humility and genuine kindness. Genuine humility and genuine kindness. Well, how do you know them? How do you know what they look like? Well, they're going to be accompanied by certain other characteristics. And the first one is this word translated patient. It is often translated long-suffering. It is the Hebrew word makrothemia, which is a compound of two words, macro, where we get our word macro, which is something large or big or long, and the word thumia, which relates to, which relates to uh, suffering. So it... The word thumia is a is a word that basically refers to anger. It refers to somebody whose emotions are 
easily stir someone who gets excited, someone who gets angry, someone who gets passionate about things. And the macro, when it's added to that, is someone who has great, great, great patience that they don't lose their temper, they don't get out of control, they don't get overly excited with their emotions. There's another word we've studied in other contexts, epithemia. Notice that thumia is the same. It has to do with passions and, and desires. And the epi intensifies this in somebody who's ruled by his passions or desires, and so it's translated as lust. So it, it, those uh, prefixes really determine the meaning there uh, of this particular word. And the word patience is often used in conjunction with or as a synonym with the next word, anekomai, which is translated bearing with one another in love. So here we have this emphasis on patience and that patience is related to putting up with one another in love. Now, I know nobody here is married to anyone that you ever had to put up with. Nobody here has any parents that you have to put up with or any children you have to put up with because everybody that you're around is just perfect. But some of us have had the occasion to be around people that were not necessarily always so lovely or always so uh, enjoyable to be around. And so we had to exercise some self-discipline. We had to be patient and we had to put up with them. And that it takes us into this, uh, this next little section. And so this emphasizes again an aspect of the fruit of the spirit. Makrothemia is translated long-suffering in these passages. We also have words related to humility. So in Galatians 5.22 and 5.23 we read, but the fruit of the Spirit, notice there's only one fruit, but that fruit has many facets that are developed by God the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. First of all, that's the first one that's mentioned. And what we're seeing in the rest of this passage is that we are to bear with one another, put up with one another by means of love. Well, where do we get this love? Because it's certainly not something we can generate or manufacture on our own, and it's the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I was going to take time. We'd go back to Galatians 5.14, where Paul has quoted from the Old Testament the passage in Leviticus that we're to love one another as ourselves. And then two verses later, he says, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So there's a contrast here between the flesh, which is the sin nature, and walking by the Spirit. It's one or the other, the way the construction is. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's not something that's blended. You're either one or, or the other. It's a binary option. And so when you're walking by the Spirit, over time the Spirit produces this fruit. It's not all manifested in one day, and it gradually slowly developed. Often we pray that God, please give me patience now. And we know that doesn't happen. It takes time to develop these things as God works on our corrupt little character. 
So, but this, that's why Paul starts off with love is because that's the context of what he's talking about back in Galatians 5.14. And so he's telling them you've got to walk by the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is first love, mentions joy and peace, and we'll see peace mentioned here in uh, verse 3, endeavoring or working or striving to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this is related to this walk with the Spirit. It's not just manufactured because we try to make ourselves do these things. These are spiritual virtues that can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. They, we can't make, make ourselves be this way. We have to grow in the Word. Jesus said his prayer to the Father of 17, sanctify them. Sanctification is a, is a word that talks about spiritual growth being set apart to the service of God. How are we sanctified? In his prayer, Jesus says, sanctify them by truth. Thy word is truth. It is the word of God that transforms us with the spirit of God. It's nothing else. And so we have, uh, through the spirit's patience, long-suffering, macrothemia, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and then in verse 23, gentleness. That's that word prowse. It's related to gentleness in our, in our own passage. So we see all of these different characteristics are the characteristics of that are produced by God the Holy Spirit. So Ephesians 4.2 says that that worthy walk is accompanied by two things. That's on the right side here in blue all genuine humility and gentle kindness, and also patience. They are both accompanied. They're not, they are separate. They're both modified by with all, with patience. And then there's a change because the next two things in 4.2, by bearing with one another in love, and then the first, the, the start of verse 3, uh, are what we have down here, they are, Rather than expressing them with a preposition, they're expressed with a participle, a participle of manner. And so it's describing the manner of this kind of life in the manner of putting up with one another by means of love. This is that Greek preposition in that we I usually translate by means of. It can mean other things like in Christ. It can have a spatial sense. But here it's means. We, we have to grow in love so that we can put up with people. And that love is the fruit of the Spirit. And then the second one is in the manner of making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we are to develop with patience. God the Holy Spirit develops macrothemia in us. And there's a couple of important passages I just want to briefly look at uh, before we wrap up. James 5 uses the word macrothemia as the noun and then macrothumio, the verb, two or three times. What's interesting is the book of James, and if you haven't listened to my series on James, it's worthy of paying attention to. James is one of the simplest books to outline, but so many people miss it. In James 1, 21, he says, be quick, to, uh, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's the outline of the book. The first chapter is about persevering in those things. 
And then he tells us, uh, has three sections, one with being quick to hear and slow to speak, the second one having to do with, uh, with speaking, and the third one having to do with setting aside these mental attitude sins such as anger. So quick to hear, listening to the word, the hearer applies the word, that's James 1, 1 and 2, and then James uh, 3 is about being... Uh, slow to speak, and James 4 gets into the mental attitude sins. And at the end, starting in verse 7 of chapter 5, he talks about patience. Macrothemia is often related to that word for endurance, which is hupomone. And so he says, therefore, having said everything he said up to that point, he starts his conclusion. He says, be patient, brethren. Well, how long do I have to be patient? He says, until Jesus comes back. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Well, I could be patient the rest of the day, but I don't know about tomorrow. I'm getting kind of tired of that person. Well, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And then his illustration is from the farmer. Now, farmers are having a tough time around southeast Texas right now because we've had 40 days and 40 nights of rain, and that's drowned everybody's gardens just about. I've never, I've lived here almost my whole life. I've never seen this much rain in June and July ever, not even with a hurricane. We just get it every day. By the way, when I was in Florida a couple of weeks ago, it rained every, every day there too, but they're used to it. That's what it does there. So farmers are to wait. They develop patience. They have to wait for the precious fruit of the earth. It takes time to, for the plants to grow and the fruit to come out waiting patiently for it until it receives the early rain and the latter rain. Well, that relates to agriculture in Israel because you have a rainy season in the spring, that's the early rain. You have another rainy season in the fall, that's the latter rain. And so you have your spring crops and you have your fall crops because in the summer it's hot and dry, and it's really hot and dry. I've been down in... Uh, Masada, where it was 105 degrees at 8 o'clock in the morning, and there's no shade there. So uh, you wait patiently until it receives the early and latter rain. He gives a second example. So he says, you also be patient. The second time he issues this command as an aorist imperative, it emphasizes the priority of this. You be patient establish your hearts, that is your spiritual life, for the coming of the Lord is near. Now, when Jesus, I mean, when the writers of Scripture say the Lord is at hand, it is the next thing on the timetable. That's the next thing is that Christ is coming back. We're not looking for the Antichrist. Everybody gets all caught up in whatever is going on in the world today and says, well, how does this fit into prophecy? God knows I don't. The next thing that's going to happen on the prophetic timetable is the rapture of the church, nothing nothing else. So the Antichrist isn't revealed until after that. The signing of the peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel isn't until after that. The, the sign of the beast, 666, is not going to happen when you're mandated to get a vaccine. 
we haven't seen the Antichrist yet. The mark of the beast doesn't come along until the midpoint of the tribulation. We're at least three and a half years away from that. So let's not get all excited about whatever we see on the horizon. We have to wait until the coming of the Lord. And then in verse 10, he says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. They, the prophets were patient. They were waiting and looking for the Messiah, and they never saw it in their lifetime until the last who was John the Baptist. First Thessalonians 5.14 Paul says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with a few. Uh, it doesn't say that. Patient with all. Do I have to be patient with fill-in-the-blank? Well, are they part of the all? That's that's why it's this is a supernaturally produced thing in our life. We can't do it. We don't want to do it, frankly, most of the time. On a good day, we might say, Lord, give me patience with so-and-so, but maybe we mean it for a second or two. God the Holy Spirit produces this. Hebrews 6, 12 we, and to 15, we get the example with uh, Abraham. They're warned, don't become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so the first example is Abraham. For when God made a promise to Abraham, when did he make that promise to Abraham? Back in Genesis chapter 12, there's the promise in verses 1 through 3 of a seed of descendants. That means he's going to have a child. Well, he's almost too old to have a child. Sarah's almost too old to have a child. So he's convinced that that uh, it's going to happen, it must happen soon, but it doesn't. And he tries to make it work, and then God said he's going to offer his servant Eliezer, and he's going to say, well, Lord, I'll adopt him, and we can do it that way. That'll be simple. Lord says, no, it's going to be a child of your own body and Sarah's body. And then later on, Sarah gets impatient. She says, well, just take my Egyptian uh, servant and uh, make her your concubine and have a child with her. And that really messed things up. We're still fighting the Arab-Israeli wars because of that. And so it goes on and on until Abraham and Sarah are way past the age where they could have children, and now God's going to show that it is a, it is a miracle. And so uh, he's going to inherit that promise through patience, waiting on the Lord. And in Hebrews 6.14, the New King James translates it poorly. It is not surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. I mentioned this on a Tuesday or Thursday night a couple of weeks ago. I'm retaking a basic Hebrew class just to pick up lots of little interesting things. It's taught by an Israeli, so I'm picking up new pronunciation. And I got the terminology for this. I've always known the principle. It's a Hebraism. And it's based on a repetition of the core word. So you have a word like going, and then it has an infinitive with it. So people who don't know Hebrew translated going, I will go, walking, I will walk, dying, you will die. But that's not what it means. It, 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 the two words are used together in a tautology uh, that means repetition, in order to emphasize the certainty of something. And so it should be translated, surely or certainly, I will greatly bless you and abundantly multiply you. Uh, 
And so 6.15 says, by being patient, he obtained the promise. And so then we come to 1 Corinthians 13.4, which says, starts to give certain characteristics of love. And the first is, love is patient. Love is long-suffering. That's why he uses the verb over here in verse 3. You put up, or in verse 2 rather, put up with one another by means of love. So we have dealt with patience and understand that this is characteristics of the walk and it must go along with humility and uh, gentle kindness or gentleness and that these two will be characterized by the manner of putting up with one another by means of love and then uh, in the manner of making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So next time we'll come back and talk about love. A word in American English that no one really understands unless they start in the Bible. So we will look at what Scripture teaches about love next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that these characteristics are produced by the Spirit that this only comes if we are walking by the Spirit and walking in your, the light of your Word, if we are studying your Word and internalizing it as we walk by the Spirit, then over time, God the Holy Spirit produces these changes. The supernatural way of life can only be produced through a supernatural means. Father, challenge us with our need to ramp up everything in our lives related to our spiritual growth. We are living in dark times, dark days. No one knows what the future will bring, but what appears on the horizon isn't good. And Father, we pray that for each one of us that we will be challenged by this to get more serious about our spiritual life than ever before so that we are prepared to meet these difficult times. Father, we also pray for anyone who listens to this, who has never trusted Christ as Savior, is not sure of their salvation, that they will come to understand that we can do nothing to save ourselves. We can do nothing to make ourselves savable. But Jesus Christ did it by paying the penalty for our sins on the cross so that all that is necessary is for us to trust in him and him alone, and on the basis of his finished work on the cross, we will have everlasting life. We pray that you would make that clear to one and all. Our Father, we pray for us as we go about our lives that we might be willing to evaluate our priorities, the way in which we spend our time and energy, that we might make you the number one priority in our life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.